Hey guys, my name's Seth. I'm the student ministry pastor around these parts. If you don't know who I am, hello. Good morning, church. Yes, it's good to see you. Morning, hello. Yep, it's good to see you guys. Uh, what a joy to worship with you today. Thank you, worship team, for leading us on in song today. Uh, we're going through this series, In the Beginning, a journey through the book of Genesis, and we've unpacked creation, fall, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, and today we're going to be stepping into the life of Joseph, talking about Joseph the dreamer. Uh, and we're going to start out in Genesis chapter 37. In fact, we're not just going to start there. We're going to pretty much couch there the whole day. So pull up a chair to Genesis 37. Uh, I'll be using the, uh, the, the NLT if you want to turn to there on your phone or if you want to just open your Bible to Genesis 37. I'll have it on the screen as well. Uh, but before we dive into the text, I just wanted to pause for a moment and say thank you. Uh, on behalf of my family, on behalf of the, the pastoral staff here at State College Alliance Church, thank you so much for the letters, for the gifts, for the blessings, for the prayers. October was Pastor Appreciation Month, and we received many letters of encouragement. Uh, and let me just tell you, I love receiving gifts and letters, especially words of affirmation, like an attaboy goes a long way with me. So if you didn't know October was Pastor Appreciation Month, uh, I'll make, make, make it, I'll let it slide this time, you're forgiven. Uh, you don't, I'm not twisting your arm to send me letters, I still like you, it's okay, it doesn't matter, it's not about me. This is me saying thank you. For those of you who gave some letters to us uh, along the way, thanks. And, and it doesn't have to just be October that you write me a letter or send me some chocolates. You can write me a letter and send me chocolates anytime. Okay, Grant, I love chocolate. Reese's, all right. Otherwise, you're kicked off the student leadership team if you don't. Just kidding. Uh, so, yes, thank you. Um, it means a lot. I, I think there's, there's good affirmation when, when we're encouraging each other. Uh, it's part of building up the body, and I'm grateful for your, your participation in the body. Uh, so, let's get to the text. Um, a theme that Pastor Aaron unpacked for us last week uh, is this idea that much of life with God is trusting him through uncertainty. Uh, and we're going to certainly press on with that idea this week uh, as the story of God's people through Abraham's line of descendants unfolds in the life of Joseph. If you just, just take a minute to think through uh, uncertainty and, and hard things that you've gone through that you're not really sure. Maybe you're in that season right now where you're going through a thing, you're going through a season where I don't know what the outcome's gonna be. Um, if you are going through that or have gone through a season like that before, can you just raise your hand for me real quick? Okay, I'm not the only one. It's good, good, relatable. Um, we don't always know what God's gonna unfold at the end of a season of uncertainty. Uh, and Joseph is kind of going through that same thing now. But what I would like to do as we unpack Genesis chapter 37 is simply highlight that God is sovereign, he's all-powerful, and the plans that he has promised to Abraham are being carried out in real time through the life of Joseph. It's part of a bigger picture of God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And Joseph gets to go along for the ride, and some of that ride isn't really pretty, but in hindsight, and even in Joseph's hindsight, which we'll come to see, God is up to something bigger than just the moments that Joseph is facing. Uh, so let's look at Je uh, Genesis chapter 37. Uh, and I'm actually gonna read through the whole chapter because I think it helps contextualize the whole story of what I want to unpack today. So it's a longer set of scripture. So just buckle up and here we go. Genesis chapter 37. 
So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. He was a snitch. Verse 3, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other uh, children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream, and when he had told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in a field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, So you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon, Joseph had another dream, and again he told, them to his, told his brothers about it. Listen, I have had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. When they had, gone, when they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, your brothers are pasturing the sheep at Shechem. Get ready, and I will send you to them. I'm ready to go, Joseph replied. Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are getting along. Jacob said, Jacob said then come back and bring me a report. So Jacob sent him on his way, and Joseph traveled to Shechem from their home in the valley of Hebron. When he arrived there, a man from the area noticed him wandering around the countryside. What are you looking for? He asked. I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph replied. Do you know where they are pasturing their sheep? Yes, the man told him. They have moved on from here, but I heard them say, let's go on to Dothan. So Joseph followed his brothers to Dothan and found them there. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance as he approached. They made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. 
So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver, and the traders took him to Egypt. Sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern. When he discovered that Joseph was missing, he tore his clothes in grief. Then he went back to his brothers and lamented, The boy is gone. What will I do now? Then the brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in its blood. They sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? The father recognized it immediately. Yes, he said, it is my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family all tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say, and then he would weep. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt, where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. So, uh, if you're familiar, if you grew up in the church, you might have heard this story about Joseph before. However, maybe you're new to reading scripture and you haven't unpacked any of Genesis before. Uh, maybe this is the first time you're hearing the story about Joseph. So what I want to do, and maybe you've already recognized this before or even now as we're reading it, but I want to highlight God's sovereign hand and God's sovereign plan being carried out through Joseph. And so I came across this, uh, this sermon a while ago from Dr. Stephen Lawson where he highlighted these seven points. And I, I was just so uh, inspired by these points. I want to share them with you because I think they're really helpful to get a grasp of what is God up to? Is God up to something? The answer is yes. Let's take a look and see how God is moving in his sovereignty here. Now we start out with Joseph. He's, he's kind of living the dream in one sense. He's the favorite son. He's got some nice swag from his dad. None of his brothers got football jerseys for Christmas, but he got this nice football jersey. Think about that if it was Christmas morning and you were the only one out of your 11 brothers that got a nice brand new football jersey. Uh, it probably wouldn't be a Tom Brady jersey. Um, might be a Ben Roethlisberger jersey, but that season's over as well. No, there's no good jerseys to give out anymore. I don't know who's getting a jersey, but uh, he got this robe from his dad, and he's chilling with his dad while his brothers are working in the fields. He's kind of got a good gig going. Joseph at this time is about 17 years old, and all of his brothers are older than him, so he's getting this favoritism, this treatment as a strapping young 17-year-old man. And here we go, Joseph receives a vision. We could say this was a dream from God that's going to take place at some point. And I don't believe at this point yet, Joseph or his parents or his brothers actually know what these dreams mean. There's another interesting thing to, to think about here that in this whole chapter, we don't hear the word or name God. Yahweh is not mentioned here at all. We also don't see the enemy identified here at all. The name, the devil, Satan, he's not clearly stated. Though the devil's at work here in the brothers, or God's hand is on Joseph here, as you can see. No, it is just stuff that we're inferring because on this side of history, we have read and studied and learned and experienced who God is and how he works and who the enemy is and how he works. And we've learned from the text all those things as well. So, we're going to be highlighting these things with that 
in mind. So let's talk about the sovereign plan of God being carried out through Joseph's life. The sovereign plan of God being carried out through Joseph's life. I continue to be surprised and yet gratefully encouraged that God uses imperfect people and imperfect situations to carry out his plans. As we read through these stories, uh, just to be clear, these aren't green lights or invitations for you to live as rotten as you can and hope that God's gonna use your rottenness for good. God is gracious and he is kind and he has the ability to take things that have been bad or are bad and use them for good. But we should not be intentionally using bad and hope that God's gonna use it for good, right? So let's be clear about that. Uh, God was at work and he is at work, whatever is plaguing you, whatever Joseph is being plagued by here today as we unpack this. I'm just reminded of this text in Jeremiah 18.6 where the Lord is writing through the hand of, of Jeremiah. Israel, people of God, you are like clay in the potter's hands and I am the potter. God is at work molding and fulfilling the promise at this point in Joseph's life that he promised to Abraham and we're gonna see that unfold. But even in your life today, what you're going through, God is the potter, and he's molding and shaping you and shaping the world around you to sharpen you and express his glory somehow. He's working through brokenness in this world to reveal his goodness. So let's look at seven points. If you're taking notes, you can say seven, seven points here that I'm gonna highlight where we see the sovereignty of God as seen in this portion of Joseph's life. God using imperfect people and imperfect situations to carry out his perfect plan. So the first way that we see God working through imperfect people and imperfect situations is the situation that we have an unfair father on the scene. Uh, We read clearly Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. His brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest. The brothers were out in the fields working, tending to the flocks while Joseph was at home chilling in his comfy robe. We have an unfair father on the scene. Now this one's a tricky one to wrestle with because all of your fathers, I am a father, my own father, we're all broken people in deeply need of God's grace, amen? All of us are in need of God's grace, amen? But God still works through fathers. And despite this father being unfair, God works through Jacob. God's master plan, his sovereign plan, is being carried out through this father as part of the line and lineage from Abraham to Joseph here. It's unfortunate that his father is unfair. I'll get that. Just kidding. So number one, we see God working through an unfair father. Having an unfair father can be a burden. Uh, so like when you're, you're the favorite child, that's great. Like that feels good when you know that you're the favorite. You might be shown some extra favor from a parent, but when you're not the favorite child, that can be burdensome as well and that can scar you for life. So just a show of hands, how many of you are the favorite child? Raise your hand. Okay, if your sibling is here, don't raise your hand. Uh, Okay, and for my sister watching this, I'm just raising my hand as an example. Uh, That's it. 
No, but there's, there's tensions there. There can be great tensions there, and so much so that you might want to kill your sibling. We see that in the lives of these brothers, that Joseph was getting so much attention and favor from, from Jacob, they wanted to kill him, and they hated him all the more uh, as the story unfolds here, as he continues to receive the dreams, receive the robes. So God is working despite an unfair father. Number two, God is working through an unknown stranger. We read in verses 15 through 17. I'm gonna read this here for you. In verse 15, it says, when he arrived there, this is Joseph arriving in Shechem where he assumed that his brothers were uh, tending to the flocks uh, where his father had sent them. Verse 15, when he arrived there, a man from the area noticed Joseph wandering around the countryside. What are you looking for? The man asked I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph replied. Do you know where they are pasturing their sheep? Yes, the man told him. They have moved on from here, but I have heard them say, let's go on to Dothan. So Joseph followed his brothers to Dothan and found them there. And we don't know anything about this man. He just shows up in the story in the middle of this field where Joseph is lost and wandering and knows exactly where the brothers are and how to send Joseph to get to where he needs to be next. Uh, this, is, this is the sovereign hand of God at work. I don't know if you've ever been literally lost and someone has given you a direction or helped you fix a tire or something like that, and you're like, it was an angel. Like it had to have been, an, like God appointed this time for this person to come and help me on my way in this season of this tr struggle that I was going through. Joseph was lost and wandering. It says he was wandering in the field. The man called out to him and knew exactly where to send him on his way next. God's sovereign plan being unfolded through an unknown stranger. Number three, God is working through an ungodly family. So let's look at verses 18 through 24 here. This is where Joseph is sold into slavery. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Very ungodly. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. So we've got murder, we've got lies. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Oh, can you hear the cold-bloodedness? Like they're so angry and envious. We'll see what comes of his dreams after we get rid of him. Oh, right? Like they are, they are angry. Their, their hatred is deep for Joseph. But when Reuben... This is, this is great. Reuben's the oldest brother. So whether he feels like responsible or actual compassion, this is his move as the oldest, oldest brother. When he hears of the scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then, we'll die without laying a, then he will die without laying a hand on him. It says Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So he was gonna come back later get Joseph out of the cistern and take him home. This is a, just a great act of bravery, whether this was like uh, because of the responsibility as the older brother or because he really had compassion. People think this is really cool, so they named a sandwich after the guy, um, which I love a good Reuben. I think Waffle Shop has a good Reuben. Anybody out there? Amen? Good fries, too. That's besides the point. Um, so we see God working through an ungodly family. And I don't know if you've ever seen a cistern before, but this is a picture of a cistern. Uh, historians uh, from the, the uh, Indiana Joneses who have dug under the ground and found old cisterns, they, they see these things being anywhere from, anywhere from like 20 to 40 feet deep. 
and the one that Joseph was thrown into had no water in it. Now, sometimes they'll have stairs that like go along the side all the way down. We don't know for sure if this one did have stairs or not. It doesn't say. But the way that these were designed is there's that narrow funnel at the top. They would slide a really heavy stone over the top of it. Probably so, so no raiders could get in there and eat it or an animal wouldn't fall into it and spoil the water supply that you would have for your family or, or your, your tribe, right? And so this is what Joseph's brothers decide to throw him into. And the fall alone, I mean, we don't know how they, they didn't, it says they grabbed him and they threw him. So we don't know what his landing was like, but if you've ever been wrestling with your brother and sister, your sibling who you dislike a little bit, even if it's dislike in that moment, and you pile drive them and it's fun because you're wrestling, but you really give them the people's elbow really good, and you're like, that one counts, man. Uh, You know, like, that had to have hurt when he fell into the cistern. This is cruel. This is ungodly. There is a deep hatred, and yet God is working through what seems to be like ungodly plans being shaped into God's plan unfolding on a bigger scheme, on a bigger scale than we can see right now at this point. So the fourth thing is an unexpected appearance. Verse 25 through 28 says this. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, they just threw their brother into a cistern to die, like to leave him there and to die. And the first thing they think is, let's eat some sandwiches. Uh, probably not a Reuben, because he wasn't that famous yet. But they, they sit down to eat right after this. Like how cold-blooded is that, that we're just gonna feast after we tossed our brother into this well to die? They were sitting down to eat. They looked up and saw a caravan of camels coming in the distance toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Okay, so this unexpected appearance is really necessary for us to look at. One, because originally the brothers were supposed to be in Shechem tending the flocks, but for some reason they decided to go to Dothan. And while they were in Dothan, Dothan is actually on the trade route from Gilead to Egypt. So as the traders would be coming down that way through Canaan, it wasn't an accident that they were right on this route in order for the traders to buy Joseph and to eventually take him on to Egypt. Like, this is God's sovereign hand at work that the location mattered. Joseph having to go to Dothan wasn't an accident. The brothers deciding, let's take our sheep to Dothan, wasn't an accident. It was part of God's plan to get Joseph into God's place. So we have this unexpected appearance of the traitors who show up from Gilead on their way to Egypt. And what happens? Well, in the midst of this unexpected appearance, we also see there's an unexpected, uh, an unplanned absence, okay? This unplanned absence is number five. Uh, In verse 29 through 30, It says, sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern. Do you remember his plans? The plans of Reuben were to come back and rescue Joseph out of the cistern and take him back to his dad. Uh, Why Joseph was, or why Reuben wasn't there to have the meal with his brothers after they threw him into the cistern, nobody really knows 100% for sure, but as I said, Reuben was the oldest brother, right? So as the oldest brother of, of 12, uh, there may have been some, some sheep or some animals in the flock that they had left behind on the way as they were tending them to get to the spot in Dothan. 
uh, as the oldest brother, it was likely his responsibility to go make sure that the stray ones came back as they were continuing to do whatever it was that they were doing. And so that's what a lot of biblical historians believe is that Reuben's not there in this moment when he's being sold because he's out getting the last couple of flocks, sheeps, cows, whatever they were tending. They were, they were left astray. Reuben's getting them, and that's why he's not here, this unplanned absence in this moment. The brothers sit down to feast. Reuben's gone getting the last little bits of sheep, and then he's coming back. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's coming back, and in this unplanned absence, he returns to this, and he says, uh, the word says, sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern, and when he discovered that Joseph was missing, he tore his clothes in grief. But what's his response? His response is, the boy is gone. What will I do now? Not, what's, what's gonna happen to Joseph? It's, what is gonna happen to me? I'm gonna be in trouble with dad when I return. What am I gonna, I'm the oldest brother. I should have been watching out for my brother and my other brothers who were scheming. I should have stepped in sooner. I'm sure he was wrestling with, with the fear of, if I stand up for Joseph now, maybe my brothers kill me too, or I don't know, we don't know. It was an unplanned absence while the unexpected appearance occurs. So, number six, we have the, whole, the unholy deception. Verses 31 through 35 reads like this. Then the brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in its blood. They sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? Man, you can even see the distaste for Joseph in this verse, right? Like, doesn't this robe belong to, isn't this our brother's robe? Isn't this Joseph, our dearest younger brother? No. Isn't this your son's robe? They want nothing to do with the connection to Joseph. Jacob recognized it immediately. Yes, he said, it is my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph rips his clothes, puts on burlap, and mourns deeply for a long time. I don't know if the brothers considered how badly this was going to hurt Jacob. Sometimes when you are heated with anger and you make a rash, sinful decision in the moment because you're peeved about something, you don't always think through the consequences of your actions, especially who else it might hurt after you carry out whatever it is that you're gonna do. I don't know if the brothers thought about this. He mourned for a long time, and his saying was this, that I will go to my grave mourning for my son. He would say this, and then he would weep. And it says that they tried to comfort him, but he refused to receive the comfort. This was an unholy deception, and God is still at work. Number seven, this is the last one that I'm gonna share with you today. You'll see some more next week as Pastor Chad unpacks the later half of Joseph's life. But here we have in number seven, an unjust slavery. In verse 36, it says, meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. 
So despite the unfairness of a father's favoritism, despite Joseph's own lostness, despite the deep-seated hatred of his brothers, despite the location shifts that occurred in tending the flocks, despite unexpected traitors, despite responsibilities that took Reuben, the oldest brother, away to tend to some stuff with the flocks when they sold Joseph, despite the greediest of unholy plans from the brothers, despite what seems like a terrible circumstance, Joseph is, listen, Joseph is in the place God intends for him to be. Why? Because God is faithful to his word. He is faithful to the promise that he has made to Abraham. And we're seeing that being carried out here. It's part of a bigger picture. So we know that there's this reality we face when we receive a call from the Lord, when we get a vision from God, when we see some sort of clarity about a decision from God to move forward with the next thing in our lives, the warfare gets real. The enemy loves when you're a little bit more bored in your relationship with Jesus and when you're not sensing his leadership at all in your life. The enemy, when you hear the clarity of the Lord in your life, the enemy is on his heels now and he's gunning for you. And his goal, John 10, 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. We see the attempts of stealing and killing and destroying being carried out here in Genesis 37. But in your life today, I wanna highlight three main tactics that the enemy uses to steal and kill and destroy. Just so you're aware. So when you're going through the times of uncertainty, you know how to pray and you know how to act against the schemes of the enemy. We talked about this uh, at our youth group this past Thursday as we were talking about how do we resist evil? How do we resist moments of temptation? So these are the three things I wanna highlight for you uh, against the attacks of the enemy. Uh, the, or the, the enemy will use the tactic of temptation, accusations, and lies. Temptation, accusations, and lies. Regarding temptations, we can't control when we are tempted but we can control how we respond. Jesus faced temptation. It's not a sin to face it. We are going to face temptation, but you have to stand up. You have to fight it, and you face and fight temptation like Jesus with the word of God as he demonstrated for us in the desert. To fight with the word, you have to know the word. And if you want to know the word and be able to use it as a weapon against the enemy, you have to dwell in it. You have to abide in it. You have to let it drench your heart and your mind. You will use it as a weapon to battle temptation when you face the enemy through this tactic. Another great benefit of this is to allow what Romans 12, 2 describes as being transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's gonna help create your, a new pattern of thought life, a new pattern of behavioral life when the word is soaking in you and you begin to think differently. When it's in your heart and on your mind, it's gonna cause you to respond differently when you face moments of temptation. The second thing is accusations. The enemy, the devil, loves to condemn and loves to shame. But we know this in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life as a believer in Jesus is to convict you of sin so that you know the difference of right and wrong, that you may choose paths of righteousness to the glory of God's name. 
So this is different from condemnation, though. Condemnation from the enemy sounds like this. You are evil. You are stuck in evil. You are gross, and everyone sees your grossness because of your sin. Look how gross you are. You're gonna pay the penalty for these things. But conviction from the Holy Spirit sounds like this. It's different from condemnation. Conviction of the Holy Spirit sounds like this. This, this is evil, but my grace is sufficient for you. This is not good for you or for those around you. Turn from this, I give you strength to be able to do so. And I have paid for these sins that you may rise as my child and walk humbly in my victory. That's the difference between these voices of condemnation and conviction. There's a clarity about what sin is, but there's a direction and a response that's to be had that is honoring to God and edifying for you. The third thing is lies. The enemy will use the tactic of lies. You don't belong here. Nobody loves you. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. Your beard's not long enough. I've heard all of these things. Fight against lies with the truth. God's truth, the word. You are totally loved unconditionally. You are accepted. You are forgiven. Know the truth and throw that back at the father of lies when he's coming at you with the untruths. We need to do this for ourselves and for the people in our community. So I've been sitting with this challenging tension this week. We know that we're going to face trials, and we know that the hardships that we face, they're going to produce character as we persevere, right? And we look at some of this and we can say, oh, this is sanctification, to be made into the image of Christ, to be set apart in our shaping and our molding that's happening in real time, to be set apart for the sacred work of God in and through us. But I wrestle with this question that's like, I, I don't know what I think about evil situations and God working through them. Like when evil is done and yet God's will prevails, I, I struggle and wrestle in this space of, I, I know that God's not causing evil because God detests evil. And 1 John 1, 5 promises that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So he, he can't be causing the things to happen. But he does this thing in his goodness and in his kindness where through the brokenness of man and earth around us, he still allows good and his plan to prevail. For us, in the way that he knows that it's good for us, but also for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And that doesn't mean like better stuff or better comfort. It could just mean his will being carried out to allow his glory to be made known and for you to get tethered closer in trust with him and for other people to see that despite whatever the hell is that's going on around you and in your life, that you're tethered to Jesus so tightly and that's the only thing keeping you afloat. That is a beautiful expression and aroma of the goodness of God. I know that's not easy, this week, I went to the hospital to visit three people. I went to visit Liz Webb because she was in the hospital recovering from a procedure. And that same day, her husband Ron Webb ended up in there too. So two birds, one stone, am I right? No, I'm kidding. Ron was there because he had a hernia. 
bless Ron, man. I love Ron and Liz. Uh, and then I went to visit Megan Brooks as well. Uh, and so all three of these names have been on the prayer chain. If you're not connected to the prayer chain and you want to know how can I be praying for people in my church or how can I get my prayer need on the prayer chain for, for my life, go ahead, just email the office at, state college, at office at sclinechurch.com and then say, hey, put me on the prayer chain. They'll put you on the prayer chain. Your prayers are important. And we wanna pray for you as well. So Ron and Liz and, and Megan uh, are all in the hospital. Uh, and for, for Liz, she's recovering from her procedure um, and it's taking some time, um, but there's a good outlook. There, there's a positive outlook of, of her being able to get home soon. And then Ron, actually Liz might be home already. I'm not sure if she's still not. She is home already. Okay, that's good. Praise God. And then Ron uh, uh, had to go to Danville to get some more work done on him because they couldn't do the procedures that he needed for his hernia here at Mount Nittany. Uh, but there's a hopeful outlook after he has those procedures done Good things looking up for Ron. And then Megan, who I spent some time with, and I was able to take some youth kids over to her house to blow the leaves uh, in Park Forest. So we did that one day, and you know, we'll have to go back the next day as well because it's Park Forest. Um, <laughs> Megan's diagnosis, unfortunately, went from like a bad case of lung cancer, and she was in the hospital that day because uh, they thought she had pneumonia in her lung on top of lung cancer. Like, that just doesn't sound fair. But they did some more biopsies and found out that the, the cancer has also gone into her bones. She has bone cancer now as well. All three, Ron, Liz, and Megan, are there with a the posture of like, I'm not really sure what's going on right now. I'm uncertain of how the, the outcome is gonna be here, but I know that God is in it, and I wanna glorify him in this moment, despite the fact that it's really hard and Liz Webb, God bless her, she's like, she's evangelizing to the nurses hardcore, even when I'm in the room. She's like, I gotta get you a Bible, sister. You know, like, she is ready, she's pressing on with the gospel, even being in a hospital bed. But they're in the place that God has them for this season. Sometimes that's just a hard thing to wrestle with. I might not always have the answer. You might not always have the answer to what exactly is God up to. But we can know that he is in it, that he has plans, and he is faithful, and that he will not leave us. So regarding God's prevailing plans, Isaiah 14, 27 says, the Lord of heaven's armies has spoken. Who can change his plans when his hand is raised who can stop him? Colossians 1.16 says this, and we sang this verse in one of our worship songs today. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is in control, he is in it, and he is good. It is hard to see that in real time, but often in hindsight, we can look back and see the puzzle pictures of different chapters of our lives and say, oh yeah, God was in that because I can see how he was working to get me to where I am today. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had the hindsight to look back and know this was a hard thing, but I can see now God was in it. I'm gonna spoil, not too much for next week, but a later perspective of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 when he's going to gather with his brothers and mourn the death of his father. 
This is his response to his brothers when they're afraid that he's gonna come back with a vengeance to smite them uh, as a ruler now in Egypt. Joseph's response to his brothers is this. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Listen, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We'll hear some more of that story next week, but I imagine that you've been able to look back and see this was hard, but God was at work in it in order to do a saving, redeeming work through me or perhaps for somebody else, perhaps to be so much more tethered closely to him, deepened in your trust and reliance on him through whatever that hardship was. It reminds me of uh, this bit of the story. What I would say is even the apex of the story of uh, this Chronicles of Narnia book that we've been going through. Uh, and we have a youth group class on Sunday mornings that meets at nine o'clock for students in sixth through 12th grade during the first service. And what we do is we unpack some Old and New Testament truths and we read a chapter of the Chronicles of Narnia and then we see the verses come to light in the story and then we apply them to like our daily lives and that equips us to be kingdom dwellers, to see work of the kingdom of light and work of the kingdom of darkness kind of coming to the surface in the story. And right now we just finished The Horse and His Boy and in The Horse and His Boy, there's a young man named Shasta And Shasta has this whole experience throughout the whole book where he runs away from an opportunity where he's about to become uh, a slave and he's trying to escape that. And he's going through a lot of hardships on the way of his uh, escape experience. And then he he finds out some information that's gonna save the the good guys from the bad guys. And so he's like, I gotta get all the way on the other side of the world to tell the good guys. Otherwise, the bad guys are gonna kill them all. That wasn't really gonna happen probably anyway, but we don't know. So all along the way, he keeps having these encounters with, with terrible moments, terrible hard moments that you're like, oh man, he's probably gonna die in the next chapter. Uh, it's really terrible. But all the way through, he has these experiences with like, different lions and different cats. And if you know anything about the Chronicles of Narnia, a a lion is rather important to the the carrying out of the whole story. The lion is Aslan, the emperor of of the land, the emperor of the sea. This is the, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And he has this moment where he's walking in the dark. Shasta's walking in the dark and he's rather lost. He's wandering completely actually. He has no idea where he's going down a path. Uh, it's the middle of the night, and all of a sudden he hears this ferocious beast padding on the surface next to him, and he can hear the breathing of the beast next to him, and he's frightened. And so they get into this conversation, he and this beast, and he comes to realize that it is a lion. And this is what the lion says to him. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. This was his friend he met on the journey. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it would come to shore where a man sat wakeful at night to receive you. Shasta has this aha moment where he realized Aslan has been with me and actually guiding me all along. It was really cool to reflect on that and have conversations about applying that truth to God in our lives with students who are realizing, yeah, God is with me despite some hard things that I'm going through. 
God is in the process of staying faithful to his promise to Joseph, even in this story. That seems hard. That seems like he's facing some really harsh things. While the warfare is being raged, the odds seem to be stacked against Joseph. The promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15 is being carried out here in Genesis 37. This might be challenging for you to come to grips with, but Joseph is in the place God wants him to be. In Genesis 15, 13, the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. This is what God said to Abram, and this is what he's carrying out in getting Joseph to the place God wants him to be, being sold into Egypt. In fact, if we aren't remembering this promise, uh, and if we forget who God is, that God is sovereign, the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament leading up to the death and resurrection of Christ can seem like many disjointed stories, but the, the word of God is one comprehensive narrative pointing us to Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, there are many similarities between Joseph and Jesus, so let me just share a few with you now before we wrap up. Uh, there will be more revealed, I think, by Pastor Chad next week as he impacts the later portion of Joseph's life, but here's six that I wanna highlight that are simili- similarities between Joseph and Jesus. He is the object of his father's special love. He had, the pro- he had promises of divine exaltation. He was mocked by his family. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was stripped of his robe and he was delivered up to the Gentiles. Just moments before Jesus is delivered up into the Gentiles, he shares the last Passover with his brothers who he has walked with for so long. Three years, step by step, he has walked with them. And he's taking the last supper and flipping it on its head to to be uh, the, the last Passover into the Lord's Supper. Now, this is no longer about a lamb that you have to sacrifice. I am the lamb that is going to be sacrificed for you. But even Jesus, who is God, (laughs) wrestles with the sovereign plan that he and the Father have had from the beginning. In the garden, this is Jesus' discussion with the heavenly Father. And this this doesn't completely make sense other than to say Jesus is fully man and fully God, and for the first time ever and only time ever, something's going to happen where the Son and the Father are, are separated. Jesus is gonna take on the sins of the world, and there's going to be a separation that occurs that Jesus takes for us, that we might be brought into relationship with the Father. Jesus, contemplating all of this, says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He says to the disciples, remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus says, my father, if this cup, this says it a second time, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, let your will be done. We all face hard things. We don't always know why they're happening or how they're going to come out in the end. But this posture of your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven, in my life as it is in heaven. This is the posture that Jesus takes before the Father. This is the posture that we are to take before the Father, despite what our circumstances are around us. And let me be clear, it is not always easy in the midst of the hard trial to say, I'm in the place where God wants me to be. In fact, it can be confusing because the enemy who is out there trying to steal and kill and destroy is going to cause you to doubt that God is possibly up to anything good or that God's hand is on your life. He's gonna cause you to be fearful. He's gonna try and tempt you to be as anxious as you possibly can. But you are not alone. Look around this room. Just look around the room at all the people that are in this room. There's a lot of people. Some have beards and some don't. There's a lot of people in this room. We are not alone. Church, we have to Philippians 2-4 with each other, taking care of each other and seeing our needs and helping meet them. We have to remind each other of the hope we have in Christ and at times carry one another to Christ like the friends carried their paraplegic friend to Jesus and lowered him through the roof after digging a hole through it. Sometimes you are the person that's the paraplegic that needs to be carried to Jesus. That's okay. Ask for help from your friends. We're here. We get weak. We have moments of stumbling and falling into temptation. We have moments of needing each other to point us back to Jesus. We need Jesus, and we have community here that helps point back to Jesus. So if you're the one facing the hard thing, don't be afraid to lean in and reach out and say, I need help. We need each other. We are here for each other. We can easily lose sight of the fact that God is at work. The enemy has a way of blinding us and deceiving us. It can be dreadfully despairing and depressing, but we look to Christ, we stand firm on his word, and we lean into each other as a family as we carry each other and point each other to Jesus. Would you pray with me as I wrap up this message here today? Christ, I pray that you would be magnified in us as we endure through hardships relying on you. Allow us to take a posture of surrender to whatever your sovereign plan is for our lives, your will, your kingdom come. I pray for a hedge of protection against the stealing and killing and destroying works of the enemy. In the name of Jesus, I pray this. I ask for wisdom from on high that your word would well up within us and that the Holy Spirit would move in us mightily in moments of temptation, in moments of accusation, in moments of facing lies. God, do this please for us and for the world around us to see and know you more for your glory alone. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're gonna transition to communion now, but before you rush off to get, grab your things, you don't need to do that just yet, but there are communion supplies in the front corners and the back corners, and the back corners also have gluten-free supplies. I just wanna get our minds in an uh, appropriate space for thinking through communion here today before we have a, a time of uh, reflection. First um, Corinthians 11 instructs us to examine ourselves regarding sin examine ourselves as being members of Christ's body and remembering and reminding each other the understanding of the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. Let's remember the true meaning of what we're about to do right now, that this is a memorial, that each element represents the death and life of Christ. 
the hope of his return and the fellowship it represents for us, the body of believers, partaking in unity with Christ and together. This is for those who have put their faith in Christ. That's why we do this as a, as a memorial, to remember the work that he has accomplished for us. If you do not have that personal relationship with Jesus, if you have not put your faith in him for eternal life and repented of your sins, this table isn't necessarily meant for you. This feast is meant for those who are remembering and celebrating with deep gratitude the death and life they experience in Christ. Now, if you want to take that step of faith today and welcome the work of Christ into your life, I invite you to do that. It is the greatest decision you will ever make in your life. This is eternal life, friends, that we're talking about. This is new life today in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is hope and a future that he is offering you. If you want to drink that, you are most welcome. Perhaps as you reflect on the message today, you find yourself in the shoes of Joseph. Maybe you're facing some uncertain difficulties that have left you nearly helpless, wandering, wondering what is God up to. Perhaps before you partake in communion today, you just confess, God, I've, I've been fearful uh, I'm, I'm unsure of what you're up to, but I again just, I place my faith in you and I declare that you are my God. I believe that you are sovereign. You're up to something and I don't understand, but strengthen my resolve, strengthen my faith. Perhaps you find yourself today in the shoes of the older brothers where you're reminded somehow today of perhaps the hurt that you have caused another, the sin that you have experienced against another that you need to ask for forgiveness for. Whatever shoes you find yourselves in today, there's hope in Jesus that is extended to you. There is forgiveness and life and faith and deep mercy, deep, deep cisterns of mercy that are for you. And he wants to pour it out, friends. He wants to pour out his mercy on your life. When we partake of this bread and this drink together in a couple minutes, we remember that this bread represents his body, which is broken for you. This is the death symbol. In baptism, the believer is showing his identification with Christ's death and his initial entrance into the body of Christ. And in communion, the bread reminds us of our continued participation in that death. That death and relationship, that death relationship is proclaimed or shown until Christ returns. Death to the old self, clinging to the new life that we have in Christ. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took this bread and when he, he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the drink, the wine, the juice, I think it's just juice, it's just juice. It pictures communion in the body of Christ. This is the life symbol, that the life of the, the flesh is in the old self, but in the blood of Christ, we might live and find new life. We might find the washing of our sins away and the forgiveness of all of our filth. We remember his death until he comes, yet we also remember this is the means by which God's life is given to man. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whatever you, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
So for the next moment that we step into here, there's gonna be a song that is played as just setting the tone for getting into a posture of reflection and confession and receiving of the Lord's Supper together. You don't need to stand and sing this song. You may, if that's your posture of worship, if you want to, but this is a time for you to solemnly respond and joyfully receive the Lord's Supper. Then we'll stand together uh, and sing a closing song. So let's step into a time of of reflection and confession uh, and receiving now.